Hello, I'm Gordon Buchanan and welcome to Beneath the Beabub, the conservation and communities podcast from JAMA International. In this series, we're exploring the vital connections between communities and wildlife in conservation projects in Africa and all around the world. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Maladadi Langa, a man with quite a unique background in the conservation and community space. He has worked in a diverse array of roles from government office right down to grassroots campaigning. Maladadi is a graduate economist with extensive experience in decentralisation, rural development and public policy. After retiring as a public servant, he has spent his recent years as chair of the Kazungo Wildlife Conservation for Community Development Association, chair of the National Community-Based Natural Resource Management Forum, and represents Malawi's associations in the Southern Africa Community Leaders Network. What an incredibly busy man. Over the last decade, the Malawian government has started the shift from centralised so-called fortress conservation policies to community-based natural resource management. That said, many tensions remain in the region, often between the rights of local communities over their land and resources and international laws and treaties implemented with good intention by governments in the global north. With a background in economics and government and an active force in decentralisation and rural development, Maladadi Langa is a leading force in Malawian wildlife policy and a respected voice in the international community. He joined me to talk community rights and conservation policy beneath the Baobab. So I've been reading up about you and your background seems quite unique, but actually perfect for a leading role in in conservation in Malawi. Can you just tell me a little bit about yourself and your background? Because I know that you started off, you were a graduate economist and you worked in government, but tell me a little bit about the path that has brought you to where you are today. Yeah, I would say the very beginning of my interest in conservation was around the 1975-76, when I was a little boy in primary school. And around that time, our village was nestled in beautiful Miyombo trees. And then there was this government farm which was being opened. This is a tobacco, Virginia tobacco farm. And they used to send maybe 10, 15 tractors to come and fell the Miyombo trees. And the entire village was outrageous. I was outrageous too, as a little boy, but there was nothing we could do. These are government tractors from a, tra- a government farm, so we couldn't protest, but they wiped out all the Miombo trees. Now, when I started work uh, in government, I was lucky to be involved with planning, and my planning is normally is integrated, so I dealt with a lot of uh, environmental issues. And that rekindled my memory as a child when I saw our beautiful forests being felled down by government farms. So my interest in conservation and the knowledge about the link between conservation and development grew during the time I was with the government. Now, after leaving government, when I went back to my village, I found that uh, the work we were doing at the policy level, conceptual design, consultations with communities, 
with stakeholders on environmental policies had actually crystallized into something concrete uh, on the ground. And that uh, the Department of National Parks and Wildlife was now establishing community associations as a way of enabling communities to participate in the management of Kasongo National Park. So instantly, I fell for it. That's how I joined the Village Natural Resource Committee as an activist in conservation. And from this Village Natural Resource Committee, I went into the Executive Committee. And from the Executive Committee, I was also entrusted to establish a national level forum for coordinating the many associations that are in Malawi. And through that, I found my way with the Community Leaders Network, which is again a regional network coordinating CBNRM uh, organizations in the Sadiq region. So basically, this has been my journey. Yeah, and that event when you were a small boy and seeing government tractors coming in and felling the trees, that I suppose maybe without that particular event, it sounds as if it was actually quite a pivotal moment that you just saw the injustice of something like that. You and the village and your family valued those trees, but you had no say over whether they stood standing or whether the government came in and cut them down. Yeah, precisely. I remember we used to ask our parents to say, but why can't you complain? Why can't you go to the village headman and complain that these people are damaging? They were cutting trees literally on the edge of the village. Even now, I feel angry because when I hear people being arrested when they go to fetch firewood in the national park, I hit back sometimes to say, look, you are the same people, the same government that actually destroyed our trees in the 70s. So, yeah, you are perfectly right. That was a really pivotal and a moment of change for me as far as conservation was concerned. And whatever happened later in life, it simply rekindled the fire of the 1970s. And I suppose over your life and over your career that you've seen a huge amount of change and you've seen, I suppose, positive change in how wildlife areas and national parks are, are managed. Malawi used a top-down fortress conservation process, creating protected areas sort of isolated from the people that actually live there. So you, across your life, you've seen that change happening, moving away from fortress conservation. Can you just explain for the listeners what fortress conservation means and give us an idea of what changes have been put in place over the years? This fortress conservation refers to the conception of conservation as perceived from um, an elitist position. You remember the beginning of conservation in Africa, the story of conservation starts with colonialism. And the colonialism was more about separating people along some value uh, judgments. So when they came to establish these protected areas, they were established on the basis of, uh, I would say, foreign values and foreign moralities which we as Africans normally would contest. So fortress conservation is a conception of conservation established on the basis of separating people from nature. And yet people and nature are intrinsically supposed to coexist. So because of this conception of separating the two, you have coming in place militarization. They need for rangers to keep people away from the protected areas and yet these protected areas were created 
from within communal ranks and people were evicted, displaced and disempowered. And now they are being told, suddenly you are now poachers, whereas these people have been hunting for food. You are now encroachers, whereas these people have been cultivating in this land as their own land. So the meaning at the bottom of it all of fortress conservation is a type of conservation that keeps people, seeks to separate people from wildlife. And at the same time, it is also based on the contested values and moralities in terms of use cases. What do you use wildlife for? Why do you save wildlife? Others will say we want it for intrinsic value. Others will say we want it to support our survival, our livelihoods. Basically, that's the essence of fortress conservation, command and control, people, that side, animals, this side, no interaction. Yeah, it's actually both those words that you use, fortress conservation, the militarization of conservation. It creates a them and us scenario. But of course, your family, your community, were living in that area way before the national park was even even established. I know that the militarization of conservation is something that you, you are very concerned about. Can you just expand on that, what you mean by that, and give us an idea how it actually affects local communities? Because it's all about this view, modern view of people protecting animals, and we see them in fatigues, we see them with guns, but that's of very focused on protecting those animals. It's not about actually caring for the needs of, of local communities. Yeah, actually, again, based on the same conception of conservation, where you want to separate people from nature or people from wildlife, they need their roads to keep people away. And how do you keep people away? You have to use force. It becomes now a security issue. But people, because they have their own livelihood needs, they will still go to fetch firewood, to fetch water, maybe to fetch mushrooms, sometimes even to kill a small animal. But then they meet rangers, and these rangers are armed. So in the process, you know what can happen. People can be harassed, people can be abused, and people's human rights can be violated. I think we need some sort of a paradigm shift because right now there's just far too much money being spent on buying guns, military fatigues, and military relations, and all that military gear that you can think of. Yet... This money can as well be spent on addressing the problem at source. In my career in conservation, what we have come to see, to realize, is that most of the people who are arrested by these military people are actually people who have gone into the park for survival. So do you really need guns to address their problem? You don't. All you need to do is these huge sums of money which are being spent on militarizing conservation, put part of this money into restoring agriculture productivity, put this money into small businesses for our youth and women, put this money into basic infrastructure for education, health facilities and the like. And you can stem the flow of encroachment on these protected areas. This militarization is actually a futile exercise it is translating into an arms race. As the rangers are given sophisticated guns, sometimes the criminals also go for more sophisticated guns. So even the villagers, they also improve their arms. So this is my whole argument that I have made and I continue to make. It's a good argument and I couldn't agree 
more with it because after all the people living in those areas that are now protected as national parks they have lived there for they're not a new addition people have lived there for hundreds if not thousands of years and they have been criminalized for their traditional practices and how they benefit from wildlife and i think yes yeah, it's, it's trying to sort of actually not have separation. I think a simple equation, think, okay, separate people and wildlife. Whereas you can't do that. You can't do that in Malawi. You can't do that in Africa. You can't do it anywhere in the world because we are a species that shares this planet with a whole range of wildlife. And it is not about separation. It's about actually kind of coexistence, I suppose. And also, maybe to give you context on the tragedy that has befallen our people living around these protected areas is that you know they have farmed this land for over a hundred years and as you are aware extension services has largely collapsed in africa not just in malawi so agriculture extension is almost non-existent so now people are farming using their own basic knowledge and the productivity Agriculture productivity is going low. So even now, when people buy fertilizer, because the soil fertility has depleted, this land has been degraded, the fertilizer response rate is now also going down. So people have no option but to look at this filter land, which is now a national park. So that's why I say, let's address the problem of declining soil fertility. Let's address the problem of land degradation in the communities so that they don't have an incentive for encroaching in the park. That's it, exactly. It's sort of people are being, and communities are being criminalised, not through greed, actually just to survive, to find enough food for their families. So that journey that has, I suppose, started sort of across your life, and thankfully things have, have changed and moved away from that sort of fortress conservation. What are the, the positive changes that you've seen nationally and specifically around Kasungu National Park in just in the recent years? Yeah, to begin with, we now have a very progressive policies across the environmental sectors and all of these policies, whether it's forestry, fisheries, wildlife, they all accommodate communities and they all provide for community participation and also benefit sharing. So that one is a huge gain for us compared to the 1970s and 80s and 90s. And then also based on the same policy, we now have communities organized around associations they are able to engage with the government officials in a formal way. And for Kasungu, we have signed a co-management agreement with the Department of National Parks and Wildlife. We get our share of 25% of revenue from the park. So I think these are huge changes. When you, you walk around the communities, they see the long-term value of the park because the best way to benefit from Kasungu National Park is to protect it, allow the wildlife population to grow so that uh, maybe five years, ten years from now, we can get uh, our tourists back. And then uh, those tourists are the ones who bring us the money, uh, either through our businesses or through employment. So people understand this basic argument and they are tolerant. Because I suppose a lot of people think, well, tourism is this silver bullet to conservation. It's good for wildlife. It's good for, for local communities. But obviously it's not going to supply 100% of every family's 
income. So agriculture is still a key part of the livelihoods of people living around Kazungu. Does tourism sort of rub up against sort of local conservation ambitions or does it work in a pre-COVID I suppose or if the tourism comes back is that sort of what people are pinning their hopes to the people that live alongside wildlife and live next to the national park the reality is that the Kasungu National Park I think because of the low wildlife population in recent years tourism has gone down but then still people living around the park used to get a little bit of money from tourism but of course, you cannot compare to uh, the levels that people would get in Kenya or in Zimbabwe. But at our level, we used to get some money pre-COVID. But then when COVID struck, since we had depended on the foreign tourists, the whole thing collapsed. So there was no tourism income. Uh, lodges around the park and even the one inside the park literally closed. And now things are uh, slowly improving. But we have also learned one lesson, and that lesson is that uh, we probably, the authorities need also to start promoting local tourism, because local tourism can be more resilient than the uh, foreign tourism. Now things are improving. That's good, but I suppose poverty and hunger is still part of life, not just in some areas of Malawi, but across different regions in the in the world. And I think it's obviously very hard to pay attention to the rules and regulations and laws and policies when you're just simply seeking food and clean water. And I think that's sort of the future for wildlife increasingly around the world is, is not ignoring people and their fundamental needs. Because unless you take care of communities' fundamental needs, their right to exist and survive and have a prosperity in their lives, you can never sort of almost, in some ways, wildlife is secondary to that because I suppose people and wildlife should not come, one shouldn't come in front of the other, they should both be considered equally. You just recently returned from the African Protected Areas Congress in, in Kigali. I know that you were sort of dissatisfied with COP26. How did, how did the Congress go in, in Kigali? Were you happy with the discussions that were being had there? Yeah, I think the Congress went on, uh, I would say it was a success uh, because the community side, all the issues that uh, are of concern to us were taken on board the Kigali call to action. For instance, the key issues, I can just mention some of them that uh, all communities were concerned about, like uh, putting people at the center of conservation. And this is against the background of eviction of people from protected areas, dispossession of people, human rights abuses, militarization. So the basic call from us communities was, can we retake a second look at this conservation model? and ensure that we put people at the center of conservation so that conservation works for people. That one was unanimously taken on board and it is there in the final Kigali call to action. Then the other issue had to do with the land rights. In most African countries, communities are basically squatters on their own land because they don't have secure tenure. And this was a rallying cry again at APAC and our colleagues up north of Africa and East Africa, who are pastoralists, we are looking for corrective land rights, recognition of corrective land rights. And for some of us from Southern Africa, we are saying yes, corrective land rights and individual tenure. 
So all these issues again found their way into the Kigali call to action. It is there clearly. And lastly, and most importantly, there was this issue about the direct funding to community organizations. Because right now, a lot of money is claimed to be going to communities. But this money is literally captured by international conservation NGOs. The statistic that is now available is that only 1% actually reaches the community level, which is basically the point of impact. So that call to found its way in the final declaration. So we are largely satisfied with the outcome of APAC. You're never going to reach a point where everything is good in conservation. It's not sort of, I suppose, there are short-term goals and long-term goals, but as the world changes for wildlife, for community, as the climate changes, with the uncertainty that we live with in the planet, this is sort of, I suppose, your work will never be finished. Are you happy that sort of... The voices of your community and your country, and I suppose the whole continent of Africa, are you, are you happy that it th- things are moving in the right direction and that, that people's voices, the voices that matter, are actually being heard? I think uh, they were very accommodating to IPLCs, Indigenous Peoples and Local Communities. They gave us uh, ample space. We had two days of our own pre-Congress workshop where we deliberated our issues freely. And then we also, all of us, moved into the main Congress. It's the right direction. If only the actions, uh, the call, can be acted upon, we're heading in a positive direction. And you've touched on this, the sustainable use of wildlife. Trophy hunting is one of these key areas of conflict that international treaties and protocols rub up against the rights of local communities. That is sustainable utilisation of natural resources. What are your concerns when it comes to trophy hunting? Because that's sort of one of those sort of very contentious issues out with, I suppose, in the global north. People think, OK, it's easy to say that trophy hunting is, is bad, so let's ban that and it's going to be good for, for everyone. Can you just expand a little bit of what, what actually sort of, you know, that strict control of using wildlife resources, what that actually means on the ground and how it affects local people? That perception from the global north is based on this neocolonial conception of conservation, where you want to separate people from wildlife. Uh, and yet we all know that the wildlife and the people have lived together and have supported each other. So if you look at the, the argument of trophy hunting, it's more to do with the contested values uh, and the contested moralities. Our colleagues up north have got the morals and the values that are probably at variance with what we have here in Africa as far as wildlife is concerned. For us, wildlife is fundamentally tied to our livelihoods. It has been and continues to do so. Whereas for our colleagues in the north, they have largely urbanized and have got fundamentally different ways of survival. So it is difficult and a little unfair to impose northern values and morals on poor people, hungry people uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. The other argument that I have, apart from morality and values, is to do with the issue of opportunity cost. Like I've told you the story of Gasungu National Park. The park itself, the land that these animals inhabit, these protected areas, have got an opportunity cost. If the animals were not there, our people would be cultivating this land. 
So if we are going to keep the world life there, then the world life has to pay its way. And one way of having making world life pay its way is through trophy hunting. So that is a fundamental of argument that makes economic sense. And the other issue is also in terms of conservation itself. Since the 80s or 90s, when IMF and World Bank hit governments in developing countries with the structural adjustment programs, most governments are basically blocked. They don't have money to manage these protected spaces. So the money that they generate from trophy hunting is recycled back into conservation or managing these protected spaces. I was in Namibia in May this year. I saw with my own eyes how private game ranchers are spending huge sums of money on conservation. They are drilling water points. They are managing the vegetation. They are fencing. And they are engaging in expensive operations. They maintain private ranchers. Obviously, all of this investment should give them a return. And somebody from the north said, tells them, say, no, you shouldn't. I can imagine today if all of those hardworking uh, private game ranchers in Namibia or South Africa, if they chose to abandon camp today, would you imagine what would happen to all that wildlife that they're taking care of? Maladari, thank you very much. I'm going to take a short break to speak to James Sadrak. James is the chair of the board of directors at the Nkota Kota Wildlife Reserve or Nawira in Malawi. Hi, my name is James Sadrak. I'm working with the Kota Kota Wildlife Reserve Association. First challenge which I've seen was poaching. The poaching itself, it has a very bad impact to communities. It also affects income generating activity project in the border zones and the, indeed the whole nation. Once convicted and in prison and imprisoned, the person can no longer feed or support his families or her family. It also at the community rainfall, they had a very bad impact. For example, if the community level or village level, the community lack labor force to carry out development works as energetic people spend a lot of times in hunting or prison. When energetic people were spending more time in the field for hunting, and if they have met with the law enforcers, the mostly poachers were punished and put into the prison. So most of them are prisoners. So they cannot support their families. They cannot support the community for development works. We had also illegal fishing. The importance of fishes, such as mpasa, are becoming rare because the fishermen were catch a fish, fishing the small fishes before multiplication. We had also the challenge of encroachment. This we are facing in several protected areas, mainly in, in our country, Malawi, as well as in Kota Kota. People were cutting down trees for farming, for timber production, for charcoal production. The impact of the encroachment 
was the increasing incidence of human and world conflict. Because they are living very close to the park, they also disturb all of vegetation of the protected areas. They also introduce new species to the protected areas because they bring new species of trees, new species of animals, and they're also compromising the concept of buffer zones. We have experience of conservation and the good relationship with the government because, first, government has put decentralization in environmental and natural resources management. This program is in response to the decentralization process. What is emerged is collaboration, collaborative management, which we call CM. All protected areas in Malawi are working with the community through collaboration management concept, which aimed to develop a sustainable and interdependent relationship between protected areas management and other stakeholders, especially neighboring rural populations, by ensuring a direct follow of benefits from the protected areas being managed to these stakeholders and to the participations of all relevant parties in the management of natural resources. From this, we have very good relationship with the government and we also interdependence one another. It refers to all parties sharing not only rights, but also revenues, sharing, also resource use. We are not just sharing only the rights of managing the protected areas, but also we are sharing the revenues which are generating from the protected areas. As an organization, we decided to have a strong link between the management of the resources and the benefits generated by the management activities. That means that the benefits driving from the use of the resources should go direct to entity, to the organization, community organization, as representative of the community. I, James Sadrak, am a community elected representative to my community organization, to my community association. They elected me. Not the government, not anyone, but the community, those are living within the border communities. To work my fellow community interest, not only my, my, my interest, but my fellow community interest to achieve our common goal. We have a common goal. Thank you. Thank you so much, James. And now we're going back to Maladadi. Maladadi, there's been some recent developments in the National Park in Kazungu with the translocation of a herd of elephants from Luwande. Can you tell me what's actually happening sort of right at the moment with that? The context is that uh, Kasungu National Park had been depleted of its elephants. Actually, at one time, we only had about 100 elephants. So one little park known as the Wonde National Park had an overpopulation of elephants. 
So an arrangement was made to translocate these elephants to Kasungu National Park. The Department of National Parks and us as communities, we discussed, we agreed. But then the fence in Kasungu National Park has not been completed. Much as you would have preferred to start bringing the animals after the fence was completed, these animals started arriving last month. So the first lot that came, 46, actually some of them broke out and have so far killed two people. One in one area, another one in another area. Last week we heard that another group of elephants also broke out of the park and they, they went roaming into the villages, scaring people. So it's an issue that is raising tension among communities and it's raising alarm. People are quite frightened. I would say we are quite frightened. We have planned meetings where we want to meet with the department, with the IFO. I don't know if African parks will come because IFO and African parks are the ones who are facilitating the translocation. But we would like to talk to them to assure us about the, uh, the fence that as they have already started moving the animals, if they can also simultaneously be working on the fence, because it is only about a third which has been done. And then also we would like them to assure us on the response rates when our people report the incidence of these elephants in our villages. They should come in good time to take them out of the villages. And also we also want to raise the difficult issue of compensation because uh, already two lives have been lost and uh, these families are in anguish right now. But uh, as far as I know, there is no compensation provided for. So as a community association, it's our job to raise these difficult questions to say what happens to these families. People are very, very alarmed about what has happened because, I mean, you get the elephants, the first road within a week, they kill two people. Now you start wondering, what happens when all of the 250 elephants come and they stay here for over a year? How many people are they going to kill? So that's the, the whole issue. My appeal definitely when we manage to meet them, my appeal will be not to stop the translocation. We accepted it as communities, but rather to push them to finish the fence. And then we see how the fence performs. Otherwise, we are going into uncharted territory as far as the uh, security of people is concerned. I'm really kind of intrigued when I'm reading about you and your breadth of experience. You are kind of perfectly placed as a modern day conservationist. So I'm intrigued in your journey from an economist to being part of the government to the work that you do today in conservation. Do you feel fully equipped, given that you grew up in a village, you saw the problems from a very early age, but you've kind of been on quite a journey. Are you? Is this how you expected your life to turn out? Was it was a natural course for you to go from economist to, to conservation. No, actually, it wasn't uh, natural, I would say. My ambition was when I retire, I would go into farming. But uh, then it is this brush with the co-management uh, arrangement or the new wildlife policy. Uh, when I heard about it, I Im instantly jumped on board. And uh, I strongly believe that uh, I'm um, perfectly equipped to handle issues related to conservation. 
the practical side of issues because I have a broad understanding in terms of policy and also I have lived the experience of conservation uh, being on the edge of the national park and uh, I'm an African so basically I speak from a position of knowledge and experience so I believe I can contribute to the conservation debate or process. You are perfectly placed to do that. If I suppose, given your life experience and everything, and I suppose growing up in this of in the 1970s, there has been huge transformation across my life, across your life. You mentioned retirement there. Is that something on the horizon or is there always going to be something for you to do in a next goal and next ambition? It's not like that I got some form of retirement. I simply stopped working for government and I went into international service and I came back to Malawi and uh, joined the conservation movement, the community conservation movement. And what comes next, I don't know, but I'm so fascinated with the work we're doing. It's very important work that I'm engaged in now because the future of the continent and the world might count on the little maridades of this world. If you put us together, we can make an impact. I think you're being incredibly modest there by saying you're making a little contribution. Um, you're making a huge, huge contribution to sort of, to not just to, to Malawi, but actually just sort of helping people understand and navigate the kind of these, this, the difficult road that conservation bounces along at the moment. You grew up or were born into a very different world. I suppose no one could have foreseen back sort of in the 60s and 70s, the climate crisis and the, the position the planet is, is in. And there's lots of negative things that we can sort of focus on in today's world. But from your perspective across your life, could you have ever envisaged sort of the, the positive changes that have taken place? Are you satisfied that Malawi is moving in the, in the right direction? Uh, as far as conservation is concerned, I'm satisfied that we are on the right path, but we have not reached our destination yet. Because if you look at Malawi, or you read about Malawi, you hear that we still have huge environmental challenges. Deforestation is increasing at an alarming rate. The communal areas have been depleted of their forests. We have serious land degradation issues. Soil fertility is declining at an alarming rate. And yet we also have an exploding population. And with climate change accelerating, I wouldn't be optimistic about the future. But I'm nevertheless optimistic that if we can sustain the momentum as far as policies, implementation are concerned, particularly the implementation side, because like I mentioned about the Kigari call to action, a lot of money is being wasted on international NGOs, paying international staff salaries, paying international consultants, and very little money uh, goes on the ground. So, on the policy front, we have made progress. But as far as implementation is concerned, we are in serious trouble. And we need to change course as soon as we can. Otherwise, we are lost. You can't be blindly 
optimistic in today's world. You have to draw hope from the positive changes that have taken place over the decades. But I think that the best way to end is to, to requote you to say that we are on the right path, but we're not at our destination. Melody, thank you so much. It's been really inspiring speaking to you. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you. It's truly been a privilege to chat to Maladadi. His experience in government and policymaking has brought an understanding of both sides of the conversation and the tensions within, whilst ensuring the best possible outcomes for the communities he represents. Our conversation laid bare the issues that present themselves when local communities feel disempowered by their own governmental or international policies. But it would appear that there have been tremendous strides forward in decentralisation already with more power being put into the hands of those who live on the land. If you'd like to find out more about Maladadi, the Kasungu Wildlife Conservation for Community Development Association, the National Community-Based Natural Resource Management Forum it's part of, or the South African Community Leaders, take a look at the links in the show notes. Or just visit the website jamainternational.com to explore more amazing international collaborations. Make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite app. JAMA International are passionate about conservation and well-being for people and planet and know it's crucial to open positive dialogues and share ideas. If you'd like to share this podcast, please do so with the hashtag beneath the beabub on social media or maybe just start a conversation with a friend. I'm Gordon Buchanan and you've been listening to Beneath the Beabub. Beneath the Beabub